In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. Uh, if you could bring the word cloud up, I want to remind everyone here that you are in a Bible-believing church. We are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's printed in the Bible, and that is why we are Bible-believing. And if you don't remember anything else, I hope that you'll go away today knowing that the truth of Scripture stands. The truth of Scripture stands. Uh, now, when you realize it, uh, that we, when you're in, the, in every church, there is order, there is structure. Uh, we have a spectrum of worship, and that's why we're here on a Be, Be Still Sunday. Some days we will gather with the idea of having a celebrate. But no matter what, we come into the presence of the living and true God. Uh, there's, we're caring. Uh, we are multi-generational, meaning that we want, whether young and old, uh, we don't discriminate on age, because if you know Jesus... Jesus said, let the children come unto me. So we want to encourage the families to come unto Christ. And uh, when we talk about being friendly or being uh, blended, all of those things are when God brings us together, I use the analogy that we have to use the horses that are in the barn. You know, and that is a, a simplified way of saying, whatever God gathers here, we want to use what he provides. I am so thankful for the musicians, for the ones stepping up to be able to fill in the gap. And we're continuing to pray that he'll raise up more. Some of you may have talents that you can contribute. Uh, it is exciting to see when you offer what you have back to the Lord. And that's why we, have, we cherish the worship opportunities too. Uh, right now, if you'll turn in your Bibles, we're going to look to uh, the last, the, almost to the last book of the Bible, to, uh, the book of Jude. It's right before the book of Revelation. And uh, even though this may not be your favorite, it, it was one of my dad's favorites. My dad was a pastor for over 50 years. And uh, he always loved right at the beginning where it said, earnestly contending for the faith. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Jude today. Uh, but our theme uh, is, is uh, on the front of the bulletin. If you look there, some of you might have caught it. Uh, what is today's theme? Okay, did you get it? Uh, when you look there, did you look like we were confused? I loved it how Jack just immediately said, hey, are we dyslexic here at New Covenant? You know, do we read it backwards? Uh, the key thing that we're looking at today is the word ungodly. And I want to make sure that we're not confused about what it means to be ungodly. And that's what we'll find in our text. So right now, let's reverently attend to the public reading of God's, and I like to say it, the errant, infallible, inspired word as was given in uh, the originals. Uh, we're going to be uh, reading several texts, but the ones that I have printed for us, uh, I start with verse 17. Verse 17 has been the theme for the whole time where he says, the Jude says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that first verse is, is putting it into context. And he's saying, hey, everybody, remember, this is not going to take you off guard. The apostles told you that God's will is for these things to happen. Now, what are these things? What are the things that the apostles predicted? Did they predict that everything would be hunky-dory? Did they predict that, that you would have a nice long life and that everybody would love you? No, <laughs> they did not predict that. In fact, uh, they, were, they were echoing what Jesus said, blessed are you when you are suffering for my sake, uh, right from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but in, in verse 17, there was this call to remember 
that this is not going to take you off guard. Our sovereign God had already planned that it was going to be included. This is what you'll experience. Now, let me take you to the next verse, which is verse 7. At the beginning of the text there, he says um, in verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, the reason I brought that up was not to focus on Sodom and Gomorrah, but to focus at the end. Remember, the apostles already have predicted certain things were going to happen, right? And if you look at verse 7 at the beginning here, I mean, this is only at verse 7 of the 25. He says, there is, um, they were an example of something. They were an example of, uh, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. There was a judgment. Now, if I could take you to our text today, verses 14 and 15, it was also about these things that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, okay, for those of you that don't understand that language, it's just the seventh generation. And you can open up the book of Genesis and you can name the names, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and you'll find that Enoch was the one who was translated, but he was the seventh generation from Adam. And Enoch wrote some things down, and they were recorded. And when Jude was writing the text, he used that, that text of Enoch 1, uh, which we, the whole thing is not considered biblical, but this particular part is given biblical credibility. When he quotes it, he said, this is what Enoch prophesied. If you look here... Verse 14, he prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord, the Kurios, comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Now, that's exciting stuff. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you would write a movie about, right? This would be better than Top Gun Maverick. You know, the Lord is coming with ten thousand of the holy ones, the angels that are coming with him. But what is he coming to do? Verse 15, our text to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against God. Isn't that a lovely verse? There's some people that think that the Bible needs to be erased and canceled because it's just too mean-spirited. You know, I, on some of the social media, they would say, oh, this needs to be canceled. Too much violence. I want you to hear this perspective. Enoch, now he was the seventh generation from Adam, so this takes you back before the flood. This takes you back way, way, way back to the beginning because Enoch probably was old enough to see and converse with Adam and Eve. And Enoch makes this, prop, uh, this prediction, this prophecy. He declares what's on the horizon. And let me read it for you again in verse 15. Uh, uh, I'm going to read verse 14 and 15. And Enoch said, the seventh from Adam, he prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such ungodly ways and of all the harsh things that those ungodly sinners have spoken against God. He goes on to say a little bit more. These people are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism even to gain uh, advantage. 
Now, we're going to read the rest of the text here so you can see the rest of the story. Today, I'm wrapping up our series in Jude. You'll hear a few more things, but you need to hear that God is going to judge. This is the one response, but this is the, uh, from verse 17 on. But you must remember, beloved, that the apostles told us about this. See, we already know that. We started there. Now, in verse 18, the apostles said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers. They will follow their ungodly passions, their own passions of ungodliness. Verse 19, it is these people who cause divisions. They're worldly people. They're devoid of the Spirit of God. And then verse 20, there's a, a transition. But, you know, yes, the apostles told us about these things, but you, you're not the same as them. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit... Keep yourselves in the love of God. Just let, let that sink in. We hear all this violence of a holy, holy, holy God. But then he, right at the tail end of it, he says, but keep yourselves in the love of God. The same God has a tremendous love. Keep yourself bathing in that love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads you to eternal life. And then he also says, verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. That's what Jude was encouraging. He said, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God and waiting on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads you to that blessed eternal life. This, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray you'll take the reading of the word and especially the preaching and make it effectual to us. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the truth of this uncomfortable text at the beginning, but of this beautiful message of the gospel throughout. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. I wanted to take you on that helicopter view of the book of Jude. I love that phrase, if, if you can get the elevation, you can see that Jude is not just reacting to a situation that he was mistreated on. It wasn't that somebody just said a bad word about him. No, Jude is, is, starts off his book and he says, Hey, I, I know about Jesus. And we know that he's the brother of the Christ, and he grew up with Mary and Joseph. He was familiar with all of these things, and it, he wasn't a believer until after Jesus rose from the dead. Now, he is privileged with, with writing to the believers, because that's what he says in, in verse, uh, two, or verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus. He says, I'm writing to you, those of you that know Jesus, too. Okay, and then he says in verse 3, Beloved, I, you guys are my brothers and sisters. We're the family of God. He says, I wanted to write to you. I was very eager to write to you about a lot more things about Jesus, about our common salvation. I wanted you to be in the know. But I found it necessary, verse 3, in the middle. I found it necessary to write a different kind of a letter. I had to write to you and appeal to you I had to write to you and challenge you. I had to write to you and stir you up. I had to make sure that you were not, I was going to say woke, um, but, but that you were not asleep. That you were not just going along with the flow and neutralized. 
I write to you appealing to you that you would do something more than that, that you would actually contend for the faith. And he actually uses an adjective there, an adverb, that you would earnestly contend for the faith, that you would give yourself to it with, with zeal, with energy, not with complacency and lethargy. With, with, uh, he says, I felt it necessary from the Holy Spirit that I needed to do this. I need you to contend for this faith, the faith that was brought to you. It was once delivered to the people of God, the faith in Jesus Christ, because there's no other faith. He's not saying, oh, it's in my big brother. No, he's saying it's in my Savior. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gives us uh, the thing, and, and this is why I don't want us to be confused. As a part of our introduction, I highlight the fact that confusion abounds. And one of the main reasons we're dealing with Jude right now is that we're in this conference, or we're in this season after the gender conference. Now, there were some of you that didn't even think that you were confused. That's why you didn't come to the conference. And you know what? Praise God you're not confused. I hope that you know whether you're a boy or you're a girl. Yesterday, I heard someone on the radio actually say that infants inside the womb know whether they're boys or girls. They get to choose. But then I heard the same person say that that person is not a life yet because it's still in the womb. It's a little bit hard to understand these people today because they're not consistent, they're not logical, and really they're leaning on their own understanding and that's the problem. They may have good intentions and they may have agendas that they think are going to get to great destinations and maybe it's going to be self-serving agendas, but you know... As a pastor, I'm not so worried about their motivation. I'm worried, I'm not worried, I am commissioned to speak the truth in love. I'm standing before you that there is no confusion. That God made boys and girls, he makes them in the womb. Psalm 139 tells us even the inner parts, and that's the boy parts and the girl parts too. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. So why is it that people can get so confused so easy? And so Jude ends up explaining how it happens. And, uh, but, but, but the Bible says elsewhere, and I'll quickly highlight it, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us why people in this world generally don't get it. Uh, if you have the verse, it says, the natural person, the person that's your neighbor, the person that's not a Christian, the natural person does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. That's just the way it is. They're spiritually dead. If you're spiritually dead, it's almost like you have your eyes closed. And that, that's why when we sing that song, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Basically, we're saying, Lord, don't leave me a natural person. Don't leave me in my own devices. Don't leave me alone. Lord, open my eyes. Help me to see. I want to see Jesus and him crucified. The natural man doesn't get it. They're spiritually discerned. They're dead. They can't get it. They don't understand it. It's foolishness to them. And that's why even today, if you... And I was driving across the country because my son moved into a house. Uh, one of them moved into a house in, in, in Cleveland and another one moved into a house in Milford. And so I've been driving around, uh, including um, talking about one of our church members who went to the house of the Lord. Uh, had a funeral for Ed. So, I mean, I've been on the go. And as I had the radio on, it's amazing the stuff that's being told on the radios. They're so confused. And I ask the question, are God's people confused too? The natural man doesn't get it. Now, um, if I go to 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, I think it's chapter 13. 
1 Corinthians 13, the text there actually tells us that there's a, some people that are Christians are not being able to see it clearly either. Now, they can see, but the Bible says, for now we see through a mirror dimly. Okay, in other words, it's like looking through a fogged up glass. You know, like when you get in the car in the morning and, and it's so cold and you can't see until you put the defroster on. You know what I'm talking about. You know, you don't put the car in gear when you can't see through the glass. It's not wise. Okay? You want to be able to see clearly. And the Bible says that now we are in a partial understanding of things, but he says, uh, but then we're going to know in full. Okay, that next verse, which I don't have up there, but he says, uh, there, there's going to be a, now we only see dimly, but then we're going to see in full. And now we experience it in part, but we're going to soon experience it in full. And it's beautiful when you realize this. And he uses the analogy of, of a man. When I was a kid, I thought like a kid. I felt like a kid. I talked like a kid. I made fun. I made stupid noises like a kid. You know, everything a kid does, that's what he did. That was then. But now, after I became a man, things were different. And you see, this is part of the truth that Jude is now passing on, is that if you are in Christ and you are a new creation, behold, the old has passed away, all has become new. You have become a new creation, and now you should be able to see this. And that's why Jude ends up communicating to us. It's necessary to share this with you. Now, there's three points we're making for the sermon. Those of you that have the supplemental, you'll see that I'm looking at Jude as a court clerk. And I learned about these a little bit because my daughter is in law school, and I think she was talking about being a clerk for somebody once. And I was thinking about, what does a clerk do? They do research, and they sometimes share. In fact, some of the Supreme Court justices' clerks, they even leak. They let things out that they're not supposed to, right? But, but Jude is actually acting like a court clerk for God. And, and it's really interesting when you look at it that way. There's three things that he brings to your attention. First, he brings attention to the crime. And then second, he's going to bring attention to the accused. And then he's going to third, take a, show us a, some attention to the judge. And we see this in the book of Jude. And if you see it, you'll be able to remember the book of Jude. Okay, so first we find out that there was a crime that took place. The law clerk is helping us to diffuse through all the confusion that's around us. He identifies what has gone wrong. Confusion abounds. It's the problem. This is what happened. Let me tell you. And so he basically says, listen up. I wanted to tell you about everything else, but let me tell you about the problem. The crime that took place. He tells us how they did it. And he tells us how serious it was. What did he do? What did they do? What did they do? What did they do? Do you know what people do? Verse 4. You ought to know this. As, as people in the community of faith, those in the covenant community, he says in verse 4, it was necessary that I wrote this because certain people creep around. Certain people sneak in. They come when you're not even noticing them. In fact, he says they are unnoticed. And, and even though uh, long ago they were appointed to this, he says when people are natural, they, they're going to do this. Why do people naturally sneak around and try to push their agendas in uh, slyly? Why don't they just tell the truth to you to your face? Why don't politicians actually get up and say, this is why I voted for this? Because they're sneaky. They're trying to get their agendas to push through without you noticing what they're really doing. It's like a magician. They're trying to make you look at this hand when they're doing something with this one. Isn't that how it works, Jack? 
I don't know how it works. <laughs> okay, now, the, the, uh, the thing that is it's interesting here is that the crime has taken place already. It's happened in their culture. They are, they are less than three decades from Jesus ascending to heaven. And they're already having people, I call them creepers, that are coming in. They're, they're, they're looking like they belong. They look like they're a part of the community, and yet they are infiltrating and they're polluting the truth of the gospel. In the book of Galatians, you have it written out in chapter two or chapter one, verse two, where he ends up saying, "What, you guys? You're so quickly removed from the gospel to another gospel." He calls it a heterodox gospel, and he says, "But really, it's not a gospel. It's not really good news because it doesn't have forgiveness of sins." Every other gospel that's being promoted by any other religious person or any other atheistic person, by any person, any other gospel is accursed. It's anathema. When you realize that, that's the problem. The problem is, is that people are polluting the gospel. And they're doing it even inside our ranks. And that's what he wants to challenge us here. They, they, there's two things that you can spot it on. They, they pervert grace and they don't give Jesus the credit for who he is. They reduce Jesus to be a mere man or a mere prophet, or they just dismiss him as a dead guy from the past. They will tell you you're, that Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, and they'll never accept that he's Lord. You see, that's what you find at the end of verse 4. Uh, he says that they pervert the grace of our God into a sensuality and they deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happens with the crime. Now, I wanted to focus on the punishment today, so I got to move you to the accused. Who does this? Jude identifies the accused. He says they, the, the law clerk is now letting us in on what they're like. He said, these people, they are, um, well, let me just use the word he uses. They're ungodly. They are the ungodly. Okay? And it's kind of fascinating because he uses this term repetitively in the 25 verses. This book has the word ungodly in it more than any other chapter or any other book of the Bible. Ungodly, 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 ungodly. In fact, when I read it just for you, it made me feel uncomfortable. Nobody wants to talk about the ungodly. Do you? When was the last time you ever talked about the word the ungodly people? Well... The first thing I want you to see is the, the vocabulary that is used. Uh, he ends up saying that these are perverts, they are hypersensual, they are, they are in our midst because they sneak around in our circles, whether they're neighbors or whether they're even actually religious people. He said, but the repetition of the term is applied to three things. Let me read it for you, if you will, in verse 14 and uh, no, in verse 15. Uh, God is going to come and execute judgment and convict He's going to convict this, the accused, the ungodly people, verse 15, of three things. Can you figure it out with me? And, and the word ungodly is applied to these three things. Okay, he, he calls them ungodly, and then there's three things about these ungodly people. First, it is their deeds. Their deeds are ungodly. In other words, their actions, their, their conduct, what they actually do. So if you want to look at somebody, you can look at their fruit and you can see whether they are ungodly or not. That goes along with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 that said, uh, by your fruit you shall know them. Or he says that what you sow, you will reap. Hey, when you understand that, that it has to do with the deeds. And he says, ungodly people do ungodly deeds. That makes sense. 
Then the next section here, if you follow along, after their ungodly need, deeds of ungodliness, then they also have committed these in ungodly ways. Ungodly ways. In other words, their manners, their, their manipulations, the way they accomplish their bad deeds, they do it in a deceitful, manipulative way. Now, Jesus said that uh, if you're of your father, the devil, you know, and, the fa and the devil is a master deceiver, so you can expect that people are going to utilize their skills to be able to get what they want. It's expected. And so he says they have ungodly manners. And then the third thing he goes on to say is they have, they have and, uh, and, excuse me, and the rest of the verse, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken. Now, this moves to their words their words somehow rather Judas tri perspectival do you see the head the heart and the hands do you see his by their lives which is their works their deeds by their uh, by their um, loves which is what they their manners their passions and also by their lips what comes out of their mouth whoa now I believe Jude is read, writing to Christians and he's telling Christians, hey, you should be aware, you should be awake, you should see this. Ungodly people, they may sneak in unnoticed, but if you look, if you have the eyes of faith, you can see their deeds are ungodly. You can see that their, their passions are ungodly. And you can see that their, their words are mean and harsh and manipulative. Now, all of that is to say about the accused. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I, I went to Psalm 1 and read it for you today. Listen to this. Blessed is the man who is not ungodly. And listen to that. Because the ungodly, he, ha he hangs around the counsel of the wicked. The ungodly stands in the way with sinners. And the ungodly sits in those seats that are given to the scoffers. I almost want to say they're sitting at the desks where the TV cameras for the evening news and the pundit shows are. That's who's sitting there, is scoffers. Now think about it. He says, blessed is the man who is not like that, who is not like the ungodly people who walk in this way, that stand around, and that actually become the, the, the scoffers. Instead, the godly people are not like that. They are the ones who delight in God's law day and night. They meditate on what God has said. They don't lean on their own understanding. They practice what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says. They trust in the Lord with all their heart. They don't lean on their own thoughts. They don't do what the popular culture says. They don't fit in with whatever the latest and greatest is. They trust in the Lord. In all their ways, they acknowledge Him. Or as, as Psalm 1 says, they delight in the law day and night. Those people are rooted like a tree. They are able to bring forth fruit of righteousness and holiness instead of the unholiness. It doesn't wither. It's like an evergreen tree rather than some of these others that lose their leaves when the season gets a little cold. The wicked, verse 4 and 5 of Psalm 1. The wicked, the ungodly, are not like the righteous. They don't prosper. They are like the chaff. They just get blown away. James says they get tossed to and fro with whatever wind comes. They don't have any solid doctrine. They're not standing on a firm foundation. They just go with whatever seems to be pragmatic and work. 
Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The ungodly will not stand. Now, that leads us to the third point in Jude, which is the judge. The judge. What does Jude tell us about the judge? Now, if he's the law clerk and he's been listening and he's been spending time with God, he is familiar that God is, is aware of these things. The law clerk does two neat things that I see in this text. The first one, he does some research. The law clerk, you know, goes back into all of the case law and he finds out, well, this is how a judge did it. This is how a judge did it. This is how a judge did it. At least that's what I think my daughter's telling me how it's done. Okay? That, that these law clerks do the research. And so if you read the book of Jude, you'll find six examples in history of when judgment was already given against the ungodly. Is there only six? Let me ask you this. Enoch was how many generations from Adam? How many generations was he from Noah? Just about the same amount. He was right there. He was living in the time of Noah. Now, what did Jesus tell us about the days of Noah? Well, he said that's the way it's going to be when he comes back. So whatever it was back in Noah's day, this is going to be finding the same pattern in the present tense day. In the latter days, that's what people are going to do. They're going to eat, drink, and be giving in marriage, or they're going to have son, son fun. They're going to have pleasure. They're going to be hedonists. That's what's going on. But back in the day, if you read Moses, Moses says that the thoughts and the intents of the hearts of every person was evil continually. <laughs> That's the culture that Enoch was in. So when Enoch started talking about the ungodly people, he didn't have to say, well, you poor people that are going to live in the 21st century, you're going to really have it bad. Those ungodly people, they're going to be popular. And they're going to push their ungodly agendas. And, and it's going to be ungodly awful. No, Enoch could say, you guys in the 21st century, you should look at how bad it is now. Now, the verdict, the reason I brought that up is, what happened to many of the contemporaries of Enoch? Do, 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 do. Did you figure it out? They didn't get nuked. Okay. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 9 that God executed his wrath. And he poured out a little bit more rain than you would have wanted. For 40 days and 40 nights, the heavens were opened up, the waters from the deep were brought up. I mean, let me tell you, if you lived on the earth, if you were one of those contemporaries of Enoch, by the way, Enoch wasn't there, you know why? He was translated, God took him already. He's one of the two people that didn't have to taste of earthly death. He understood about ungodliness. And God took him home. But when Enoch prophesied and said, God's gonna come heavy on the ungodly, let me tell you, he did. He already did it once, and now Jude ends up saying in verse 14 and 15, Enoch's prophecy saying, Behold, this same God is going to come with ten thousands of his angels. Now, this tells you that it's not going to just be, it's going to be discreet. Oh, nobody's even going to notice. No, when God's fury is going to be poured out, it's going to be noticed. He's going to execute judgment on all, and he's going to bring conviction upon all these people who, are, who have the verdict of guilty. Guilty. The judgment of God is going to come down hard on the soul that has sinned. Now, right now, it, it doesn't feel like they're going to get it. In fact, most of us are wondering whether, is God ever going to do anything? 
these mean people, they get away with everything. We're getting so impatient. God, are you going to do anything? Because when you look around, it's, it was unfathomable for me to listen on the radio to a political endorsement of somebody saying, we want to be able to kill these things all the way up till, their, till the day of the, you know, until they would be birthed. And they're, they're, they're not shying away from it. And they're saying, how dare anybody else suggest anything else? They're so extreme. They're so radical. And I'm just like, this is what the world is coming to? I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to help you to see the ungodly are not so. They are going to receive the verdict that the judge is going to give. He's already given it more than six times. I already told you the extra is a seventh. And he's going to do it again. He's going to execute judgment on all these ungodly things. And most of the hardest thing that he explains here, Jude, the law clerk, says, let me tell you a little bit about this. Yeah, he doesn't tell us all their deeds and he doesn't tell us all their passions. He does say they're sensual and they're really not good. That's why he compares it to Sodom and Gomorrah, which is kind of, I don't even want to compare that. It's not pleasant. But then he gives a little explanation there. He says, it's because of their words. Now, what makes their words so bad? It's because they are angry at God. They're already atheists, so they don't even believe in God. But they have, a, 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 they have knowledge in their heart. They know that what they're pushing is, is in contrast to what, what we hold. They're in contrast to, to some truth that everybody is aware of. I mean, Scripture says in Romans 1 that we're all without excuse. They got it too. They may be spiritually dead, but they're realizing that they didn't create this world. They came up with a theory to try to say that it just happened by chance, that something came from nothing, and that they are implying that evolution is this whole idea that, well, it just sparked. No order, no rhyme, no reason, no direction, no purpose, no right, no wrong. It just took billions and billions of years. This is what the secular mind is trying to grasp at because they can't hold on to anything else. Now, here, he says really what they're doing with their words is they're defying God's authority. They're saying what they say matters more than what God says. And that's why he says they're grumblers and they're malcontents and they're all these other things. You can see what they are. They just don't like what God said. They don't like God's way. Because God's way isn't the way they like. When they lean on their own understanding and do what's popular to them... I keep telling you, one of the things that amazes me is this Green New Deal concept. Somehow or other, godless people are thinking that they can fix this planet. I am amazed at that kind of faith. Man, they are able to do something to fix this broken world. I mean, they acknowledge that it's broken. Anytime something is not comfortable or fun, they'll blame it on, well, they don't have God to blame it on. So who do they blame it on? You and me. It's our fault. So the way that they're going to fix this, since they don't have God, is that they're going to get us to change our behaviors, to change our words, to change our actions, and to, and to change what we can afford, and all this kind of stuff. And they are creating a new world, a new world order. And, and, and let me put it in simple terms. They're creating a heaven on earth because they don't believe in heaven. Having said that, this is what the creepers, the crime is, is that they are promoting their godless, their ungodly thoughts, even amongst Christians. And Jude says, wake up, brothers and sisters. Wake up. 
And then he says, when you think about it, you can see it, you can see it, you can see it, you can identify it for yourself. Just open your eyes. And then he says, God is the judge. And his verdict, it's already sealed. We don't have to wait for a Mueller report or for a Durham report. We don't have to see what the DOJ does or what the Supreme Court rules. We already know the verdict. The soul that sins will surely Help me out. Surely die. If you have Exodus 34, 7, you can see that Moses was trying to tell the people of God that they, he will by no means clear the guilty. God will not overlook the bad stuff. And say, oh, I like that guy. Oh, she's such a cute girl. I'll just let her go. Oh, she did something when she was two years old. So awesome. I'll just let her get to heaven. No, he doesn't work on a curve. The soul that sins will surely die. The wages of sin is separation from God's holiness. He has to, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He has to. God cannot just skip over it. The wrath of the holy, holy God is going to be poured out. That's the verdict. Now, the good news as we come to the communion table is that he doesn't say, well, we're all screwed. Pardon my French. What he says is that God, the sovereign God, the judge, he is going to take out the judge. He, he's going to take out the ungodly. But then he looks at you and me and he says, are you ungodly? How many of you want to raise your hand and say, I'm one of those ungodly? I sneak around. I push my personal agenda. I don't read that Bible stuff. That's so archaic. That's so patriarchal. That's, that's, that's so spiritual. That's so crazy. You, you just, you're just not up with the times. You know, you don't even treat women right anymore. You don't even treat kids right. You see, the secular world doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. They think we're fools. If you are godly, then he ends up telling you, hey, build yourselves up in the holy faith. Now, that's a little hard for me to say because I always say God's big in salvation and you're not. So when this says build yourself up, when he has that reflexive aspect where you're supposed to engage it, build yourself, build yourself, build yourself. I'm not trying to come around here and tell you that to look in the mirror and say, you can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. You don't have to be your own cheerleader. That's not what this is talking about. This is exactly what Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.15. I don't have it up there right now. 1 Timothy 2.15 where Paul looks to Timothy, who's known the scriptures from, the, from youth, from his mom, his grandmother, he, and he has been called by God to serve. And Paul writes to Timothy and he says, I want you to study to show yourself approved unto God. I want you to study. I want you to rightly handle the word of truth. And that's 1 Timothy 2.15. It's so clear. That's what Jude is saying to all of us. He says, build yourself up in the holy faith. When you have opportunity, open the word of God up. I mean, already Psalm 1 tells you, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he, de he delights one minute a week. You know what I mean. He delights in it day and night. He's almost too spiritually minded to be earthly good. He delights in the law of the Lord. And that is what Jude is saying. Pray in the Holy Spirit. And he says, build yourself up in the holy faith that you're contending, that you're not compromising. You don't have any counterfeits. He says, if you, if you know the truth, it'll set you free. I have in front of me a, a, uh, a silver dollar. You know, is it silver? 
How do you know? How do you know? Maybe it has silver paint on it. The way that you can know the truth is if you can do the study and do the research and you'll know it. I know this is a silver piece and it's already you know, indicated that it's not phony. It's actually got the right stuff. It's not a counterfeit. I was gonna bring up one of those chocolate gold pieces and I was gonna hold that up and here I got a gold piece and a silver piece. And all of you would say, give me that chocolate piece, I'm hungry. You know what I mean, you can recognize the counterfeit. But then there's one more thing that I finish up with in Jude. He says you need to deal with the truth so you're not ungodly. But then he says, there's people around you. If you bring it up here um, in the next verse, he says, I want you to build yourself up in the holy faith. But he says um, in verse, I guess it's, a, do I have it in verse 11? Um, save others. Yeah, it's right here. Um, no, the, the, but you, beloved, verse 20. Beloved, build up yourself in the holy faith. Pray in the spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus that leads you to eternal life. In other words, endure to the end. Don't give up. Run the race that's set before you, to quote from Hebrews chapter 12. But then in verse uh, 22, and have, what's the word there in verse 22? Do any of you have extra mercy to share? Do you? I could use a little extra mercy. It seems like people go around today and they want justice. I want justice! I gotta have justice! You know what I mean. You can see people take up placards and they can stand around. And some of you may even make fun of me making a joke about it. But nobody goes around wanting mercy. And Jude says, in light of all of this ungodliness in the world, I want you to have mercy. Now, mercy only exists in light of justice. Mercy says, don't give people what they deserve. When somebody beats you up and slaps you in the face, what does Jesus say to you? Punch him in the gut, below the belt, right? No, he says, give them your other cheek. They don't deserve that. Have mercy on them. What they deserve is probably to be taken down. But mercy is different because you are not ungodly, because you don't have those agendas of the ungodly, because you have the mind of Christ, Philippians 2. You have mercy on these other people. Now, why? What are these other people that he's talking about? Verse, uh, verse 22, have mercy on those who struggle, who doubt, who are caught up. Now, why would people doubt? It's because they've been listening to the wrong voices for so long that they can't even discern between good and bad. They can't figure out the counterfeit from the real. Have a little mercy for them. Now, I, it doesn't, doesn't say that it's necessarily having mercy on the people that are the ringleaders. He says the ones who are struggling, the ones who are being picked off. Some of you have children. I've already counseled with you. And it's so sad when your kids are buying into the secular system and they're distancing themselves from the Bible and the Word of God. There are so many of us that are afraid to even do the things that we know that are good to do. You see, this is what's happening. He says, have mercy on the people that are struggling. Don't give them what they deserve right now. God will take care of them. If they're actually the ungodly ones, they'll get the judgment and the verdict from the, from the Holy God. Have mercy on them that doubt. And then he gives a little more explanation there, and that's kind of intriguing. Verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire, and to others show mercy with fear, 
hating even the garment that's stained by the flesh. Now, that language of the garment, that's from Zechariah chapter 3, verse 4. It's also found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 4. And it talks about being unspotted, and it's so appropriate to bring us to the communion table. He says, you know what? When you're ungodly, it's like you got stains. It's like wearing clothes that are stains. I have a, a fountain pen, and I am notoriously dripping this on my shirt. And my wife says, oh, you're going to have to throw that out. And then somehow or other, she cleans it. Thank you. But when we get these stains of sin, they just don't wash away. Or do they? The filthy garments of ungodliness, from our harsh speech to our ugly sensual passions to our bad deeds, are just, you know, breaking the Ten Commandments. When you realize all that mess is like being filthy. And he says, hey, snatch them from the fire by helping them. Don't go around with dirty garments. Basically, he says, you need to be washed white as snow. Our prayer vigil has that theme. Come unto me. He, he says, grabs your attention, Isaiah says. Come, though your sins may be stained like scarlet red, they will be as white as snow. God can clean you up. As you come to the Lord's table today, I want to challenge you to look at your own soul. Don't get your binoculars out to make sure you can look around the room and see, oh, I see so-and-so, they're big sinners. Oh, did you know what they did? I wasn't meaning to point to you. Yeah, to you. Um, no, I could point over here. Did you see what she did over here? I mean, this is the whole, we could get into the gossip train really quick. We're coming to the Lord's table and the call is to not look at everybody else. So look at you. Examine your own heart. Is there ungodliness there? If there is ungodliness there, if there is the stain, then remember what can wash away my sin. Help me. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's why the cross is there. It's empty. The blood of Christ. Oh, the precious blood of Christ that washes me white as snow. As the elders would come forward, we're going to have communion. I want to pray and prepare our hearts. Lord Jesus.